Okay, so let us begin with the prayer then. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, for the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant that by the same spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of the Most Holy Rosary, St. Joseph, St. Pius X. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. So this afternoon, gentlemen, we're going to talk about uh, globalism, the International Federation of Nations. Right, the Federation, for those of you who are familiar with Star Trek, <laughs> you know the Federation of Nations of the Universe. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. We're just talking about the Federation of the Nations of the Earth. Right. Uh, is it permitted? Is it natural? Is it something that can be agreed upon by the nations, by the different rulers of the Earth? Uh, what about the United Nations, the League of Nations, the European Union, and so on? So uh, I think what, I, we need, what I'm going to focus on this afternoon are, are the principles governing international law, uh, principles governing uh, an international society, the establishment of an international society. And that way, uh, those of you who have more information and background in all the political aspects of the uh, modern world, you can apply those to the principles. But uh, we need to see a few things first concerning the beginnings of uh, modern-day globalism, the idea of of a certain ruling power, right? Uh, one a group of men or people ruling uh, the earth, as it were, ruling all the nations, right? Uh, what was the cause of this? Where, where is the beginning of this modern-day movement? Now, some might think that it has begun, uh, has begun only in this century, maybe a few decades ago, uh, with the World Wars or the middle of the century with Roosevelt and so on. Uh, but it goes back quite far. Now, what we need to do, really, as, as Catholics who are trying to seek the true, the true causes, the true problems, we need to also find the true solutions. So let's, let's find the, the true um, causes of the modern-day globalism so that we can apply the true solutions to the problem. So first of all, this modern-day globalism, this movement, in the domain of religion, it began with the Protestant Revolution, which is against the Catholic Church, culminating with liberalism and modernism, Vatican II, and the Freemasonic ecumenism and human dignity as the new means of peace for humanity and the brotherhood of man. So in the domain of religion, it began with the Protestant Revolution. In the domain of politics, We could say it began with the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Bolshevik Revolution, and all the subsequent national revolutions against Christendom. Obviously, we can certainly point to the, uh, the takeover of England by the anti-Catholic forces 
at the time of uh, um, Elizabeth, 1500s, 1600s, the force that took over that country, which uh, began the, the worldwide movement of naturalism. Right? So we can even go back that far in the political domain, really. But as far as the modern movement, we can, we can go back to the, the American-French Revolution and so on. Even at the time of the American-French Re Revolution, when James Madison was over in, in France, he was speaking with Lafayette, and he, and he saw the French Revolution as a continuation of the American Revolution, as the, the worldwide movement to eventually establish a one-world republic. That was already in the minds of these people at, at the time of the, uh, the a collapsing of Christendom to replace the Christian social order, if you want to call it Christendom, the Holy Roman Empire, which didn't seem to be so holy after all, <laughs> but to replace the order of Christendom with the order of, of natural new world order. And this goes back several centuries. So really, you see, it's going to be a supernatural battle. It's a battle of the children of, of God against the children of the devil. So we need to focus on that first. It's not just a political thing. It shows itself in the political order, the economic order, and so on. But the real cause is the rebellion against Christ and his church and the supernatural order. So you see right away that where the true solution is going to be found. So again, the beginning of, of this glo globalism, this global movement, this modern-day globalism, in the domain of religion, Protestant revolution, and in our day, liberalism and modernism, right, continuing. In the domain of politics, with the American Revolution, French Revolution, and the subsequent national revolutions, to, to establish a natural world order. In the domain of philosophy, because obviously requires the, the, the changing of the thought pattern in the minds of the people. So we have this uh, already with Descartes and Hobbes, the breakdown of, of scholastic philosophy, the rejection of scholastic philosophy, right, already beginning in the 1600s, even before, you know, 1600s, 1800s. And then in the domain of economics, because this also has a very intimate connection with the globalism, begins, we see it beginning with the scientific and the industrial revolutions. We'll see that tomorrow. Remember, too, that unrestricted capitalism is the necessary step to provoke the opposite reactionism of socialism, the reaction of socialism and communism. which in turn is going to require a, uh, an international policeman, you see. So uh, you have one, one movement which provokes another movement throughout the history of, the, of uh, this revolution against the church. So the whole world is being manipulated by other forces, ultimately from the devil, the forces of the devil, to try to destroy the church of Christ. Clearly then, the forces of Freemasonry and naturalism and other hidden powers were already at work against Christendom centuries ago, setting in motion their long-range plan to establish a new world order. Consequently, right, they didn't begin their agenda of globalism only recently in the middle of the 20th century. It goes far back. What did Father Dennis Fahey say in his book, The Mystical Body of Christ and the Reorganization of Society? It's in the introduction on page 11, so X1, right? He says, The steady decay in social acknowledgement of the kingship of Christ 
which the world has witnessed over the past 150 years, is in great part due to the action of the visible naturalistic forces of the Jewish nation and the Freemasonry acting under the anti-supernatural inspiration of Satan. And that action owes itself, its, its success, in large measure to secret organizations. But he continues, needless to say, the plotting of secret societies do not, does not suffice to account for everything in history, for the causes of historical events are very complex. But if these forces are left out of account, modern history becomes a puzzle. The, the art of maneuvering human beings towards a certain goal, without their being aware that they are being so maneuvered, has been brought to a pitch of perfection never before attained. The control of money facilitates the acquisition of the power to influence all the technical agencies for the formation of public opinion, the press, the radio, and the cinema." Unquote. Pope Pius XI also has a few things to say. It's in his encyclical on atheistic communism, and he says, a third powerful factor in the, the diffusion of communism is the conspiracy of silence on the part of a large section of the non-Catholic press of the world. We, can, we, we say conspiracy because it, is not, because it is impossible otherwise to explain how a press so eager, so eager to exploit even the little daily incidents of life has been able to remain silent for so long about the horror traded in Russia, in Mexico, and even in a great part of Spain. Actively, so little to say concerning a world organization as fast as Russian communism. This silence is due in part to short-sighted political policy and is favored by various occult forces which for a long time have been working for the overthrow of the Christian social order. Unquote. And again, in the same encyclical, right, Pope Pius XI, citing Pope Leo XIII, he declares, with clear intuition, Leo XIII pointed out that the atheistic movements existing among the masses of the machine age had their origin in that school of philosophy which for centuries had sought to divorce science from the life of the faith of the church. So uh, divorce science from the life of the faith and of the church. I'm sorry. Then Pope Pius XII, on July 24, 1958, he says, he denounced as roots of modern apostasy, scientific atheism, dialectic materialism, rationalism, secularism, and their common mother, Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. So we go back centuries in this movement against Christendom to establish a one world order against the, against the, uh, the holy city of the saints, as it says in the Apocalypse. Now, we can make a little distinction with regard to globalism or internationalism. If you consider internationalism in the super, supernatural or spiritual order, that which unites all the men of the earth together in one brotherhood, uh, we see the Catholic faith, the faith of Christ, supernatural order, by which all men are destined, right, by, uh, by God's you know, will, right, by God's offering of his gift, destined to heaven. And so that's true internationalism, really. It's uh, belonging to the Catholic faith that unites all men on this earth 
in the one brotherhood of, with Christ, the supernatural brotherhood of Christ. So that's the, that, that we're all working for, right? To bring all, all men to come to, to the knowledge and the, the love of Christ. So with this uh, spiritual globalism, if you want to call it, the internationality or universality of the Catholic religion, we see the unity of all nations keeping their national sovereignty, but united together in Christ through the Catholic faith and the, Cat and the Catholic social order. Of course, I think what we're seeing today more so, though, I mean, what we're going to study now is the idea of uh, uh, globalism in the temporal domain, in the temporal order. Right? This modern globalism or internationalism refers to the union of the various nations of the world working for the common good of humanity in the purely natural domain, but to the suppression, as we see, of the individual rights of nations. And that's slowly what we're seeing happening. And this modern day globalism is founded on the following considerations, right? economic considerations, international trade, international finance and banking, we know, military and defense considerations, right? the defense of individual nations against unjust aggression, which is not a bad thing, by the way, international law, an international tribunal, and so on. So this is what we're looking at, really, is this temporal globalism, right? What do we do? How do we, how do we uh, judge this, uh, this movement to unite all the nations of the earth into one international society? Is it Catholic? Is it not Catholic? And so on. For what it's worth, I was speaking with a, a friend of mine over in England. And uh, we hear a lot, of course, we know that we have such great financial power exercised out of, uh, uh, out of New York, the banks and so on. I mean, we, we know that. Um, but for what it's worth, uh, you probably have heard of the author. His name is Eustace Mullins. He wrote a book some years ago called The World Rulers. I think that's what it's called a few, a few years ago. But in this uh, book, he claims that there are three uh, orders of the world, in the world of international, international finance, three orders. And in the first order, the first dynasty, if you want to call it, we have uh, Rothschild, and the ruling aristocracy of England and Europe, these men who have held stock in the London market uh, since the 1600s. This is the first order of control of international finance. In the second order, we have Rockefeller, Morgan, Harriman's, and so on. The third order, they say the Bush family, and so on. This is just his inf the information he relates. Of course, you also have, uh, those, for those of you who are aware, right, you have the, the, the Bilderbergers, the members of the Trilateral Commission, and so on. Right. Um, we're not going to get into all that. That's going to distract us from seeing the principles of uh, internationalism. But we know that's there. At the same time, we know that the fight of the Catholic Church is not one, strictly speaking, in that political domain anyway. I mean, surely, with the spread of the Christian, the Catholic faith in all nations, slowly the people will want to set up for themselves a Christian social order. But we've got to begin precisely with the conversion of the individual, the conversion and the protection of the Christian family. So we know that. It's interesting as well that Eustace Mullins also claims that the founder of this organization called the John Birch Society, Robert Welch, was a 32nd degree Freemason. Right? And another author by the name of James Braddock, James Braddock, I believe he was a military man, a retired Navy officer, some Air Force officer, I forget now. I have his booklet I've put away. 
It's a book that he wrote called The John Burr Society and Enigma. He says, which is from the Wiseman Publications, Burnsville, Minnesota, 1991. He says on page 13, the first signs of the John Burr Society appeared in 1958. They had to have the strong nucleus for this antithesis or it would not fly. And a full-blown effort had to be made to get the right leader and get one they did in the form of another 32nd degree Freemason. He was Robert Welch, head of and heir to the Welch Candy Company. Welch, for some time, had been trying to sell the company, but with little luck at his price. Lo and behold, suddenly an angel appeared upon the scene, and that angel was one Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. Good old boy Nelson purchased the company for a price that was three times the asking price, but with the condition that Robert would head to the new John Burr Society. Just a matter of interest. When I wrote, wrote my uh, book on the, uh, the Sword of Christendom, I did, decided not to put that, that text in there because I couldn't find other books to substantiate. These two authors mentioned it, but there weren't others, so I wanted to put it in, so I took it out of my official uh, Sword of Christendom. Now, let's get to the, the main points here. The principles governing international law and the union of nations. I mean, society has changed a lot since the Industrial Revolution. Societies, uh, in order to, to exist, families to exist, require a, lo a lot more than they did centuries ago. We require the, the um, utility companies, gas and power, electricity, oil. The, uh, we don't have all the little individual farms. So we require, uh, we're dependent upon so many of the modern inventions, the modern techniques, for our society to be able to exist. And oftentimes there are different countries around the world that cannot provide for their own needs anymore. They can only receive certain things by trading from other countries, whether it's oil, uh, a food, wheat, and so on. That's an established fact. We know that. And so uh, this idea of the nations working together for the common good of the individual nations does come into play. It seems to be applying more and more today because nations are, are becoming interdependent upon one another. They need each other. So there needs to be something done to protect the, the, the rights, the natural rights of the individual nations and to help the individual nations who find themselves in difficult times, to help them to, uh, to provide for the common good in their own nation by the assistance of other nations, not involving themselves or interfering in the national sovereignty of the, of the individual nations, of course not, but assisting according to the natural obligations of, um, you know, help, help thy neighbor, and so on. So let's get to the, some of the principles now, so we don't, don't miss out on, on all of them. So the question is the following. Is it by nature itself, or by the positive law of men, that certain laws and duties are imposed upon the different nations of the world and their leaders in order to regulate the relationship and interaction between them. So does it come from nature, that there are rights and duties of each na of nation uh, by which an international law must protect, or does it come from an agreement of nations among each other by which they establish an international law? So this refers both to the relations of the societies as such between themselves and the relations between the citizens of diverse nations. 
So when you go over to England or France or Germany, or you make a trip to, to a Jerusalem or Mexico, do you have rights in a different country? Does that country have an obligation to recognize your rights as an individual in, 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 uh, in that country? Well, common sense would say, of course. So there's a certain, amount, there's a certain natural law which is going to bind all nations to, to protect and observe uh, the rights of the individual members of other societies in their relations with other countries, of course. Consequently, the question is, is it by nature or only by the positive law, which is the convention of man, that there should be an international law overseeing the common good of nations in their relations towards each other and the world? And furthermore, is the association of the nations in an international society a natural consequence of the social nature of man? Or is it simply the result of a voluntary agreement between nations and their rulers? So these are the questions. Let's see what uh, our Catholic uh, uh, teaching will, will give to us. Sir, first of all, some preliminary thoughts in our mind. You've, I'm sure you've heard them already over the past few conferences, but let's mention these once again. The first thing, the state is a moral person, and any person or person may naturally and legitimately unite with other persons to form natural associations for a common end. Thus, it would be in accordance with natural principles, so with nature, for various nations to unite together in an association for a common goal that is directed to the common good of the individual nations. So nature is not against this. Second point, the state is, is the perfect society in the temporal order. We learned that from our Catholic teaching. And the, in the supernatural order, it's the church that is the perfect society. Now, let's not misunderstand what we mean by perfect society. It doesn't mean perfect in the moral order, right? Perfect in all these things. But, but that the society, the state, for example, has within itself all the means necessary to attain its temporal end, which is the common good of its citizens. And the church has within herself all the means necessary to attain for her members what is necessary for, for their eternal salvation. So all the means are in each of these states. So is there going to be another third perfect society? And then, well, what order is it going to be in? We already, so, so let's go here. So the state is the perfect society in the temporal order, the church in the supernatural order. For the state has within itself all the means necessary to ensure its temporal end for all the temporal needs of its citizens. Therefore, any union of nations could not result in a supra-perfect global state absorbing all the nations of the world. Since the state is already the perfect society in the natural order, the temporal order, the unity of various states or nations in a confederation of states cannot constitute a one-world state, reducing the individual nations to an imperfect status with regard to their own national sovereignty. For just as the state's goal is to ensure the common good of its own citizens, and so also, the necessary goal of any confederation of states, so international society, can only be to protect the common good of the individual nations as perfect societies in their own domain. Seems okay, pretty clear. The state ensures all the temporal and natural needs of its citizens, including customs, traditions, education, arts, and so on, that these things are, that are proper to the citizens. 
These things must be safeguarded against unjust absorption by outside nations. National sovereignty must be ensured and protected for the good of the state and its citizens. Well, these, I think, is common sense here. Outside developments or improvements, discoveries in the, in the scientific order, for example, right? These things may be adopted and introduced in, in the individual nations, but only through the legitimate authority of, of that individual nation, right? Which is seeking the common good of its citizens, especially in view of safeguarding all wholesome customs and traditions dear to the people. For it is these things which determine the people to be what they are. Right? So it's important for the nations to, to preserve their customs, their traditions uh, that make them what they are, as long as it, they aren't contrary, to, obviously, customs or traditions which are harmful. That would be wrong, of course. And the third point I have here is the principal unit of the state is the family. Therefore, the state is founded upon the union of families, and it exists to provide for the temporal needs of the families, normally by delegating as much as possible to the, uh, the various works to the private sector and society in order to promote and protect private enterprise as far as the, um, the, the, the um, domain of the uh, private sector in the society, distributing the work, as it were, to the, the members of society as, as an organism, the as the parts, the members of a body, you see. The head can't do everything. The hands and the feet have to, to work together for the, whole, for the good of the whole body. The state, therefore, is not based on the economic system or financial considerations primarily. Family and all the aspects of, of the common good, the te common temporal good of families, united together in the society under a common authority. Consequently, any international federation of nations cannot be simply based on the economic and financial order. Rather, it must be based upon all those considerations of the individual nations with regard to the temporal wel welfare of their families and the private institutions of the individual nations, right? That, that is, all those considerations with regard to the common good of each individual nation as a distinct moral person. I think these are some preliminary, preliminary remarks that can help us to see clearly when we see these following principles. First of all, some erroneous opinions. Some people, influenced by the erroneous concept of the right of nations, deny the existence of a natural international law. Thus, they consider that all international laws and duties proceed only from the positive law, which means they are made up by the uh, agreement of men. Therefore, men can change the international laws of, and in a certain sense, even harm the common good in a certain sense, if they can change laws contrary to nature. The second error, others wrongly, wrongly interpreting history come to the same conclusion. They say that if international law came from the natural law, then it should be seen among all peoples, especially those of great culture. But it did not exist among the most ancient and wise nations, such as the Greeks and the Chaldeans, the Romans or the Egyptians. For these nations did not acknowledge, either in theory or in practice, the existence of a natural law governing the rights and duties between nations. The only law ruling the international relations among those various nations was national egotism and self-interest, the power, right? national powers, and of the, the empire. Now, according to these authors, the beginning of international law 
was only seen after the preaching and propagation of the Christian religion. This international law was encouraged by church writers in order to give stability to the idea of Christian justice and charity between nations. Those who hold this opinion conclude that international law does not proceed from nature itself, but is merely a positive law and a Christian law. I mean, we can say that a positive law can certainly be enacted by men in order to, to make precisions on the natural law, to make determinations. That's understood. But the question is, is it a natural law first? This, the idea of the international juridical order, is it a natural law? Or does it just simply proceed from the, um, the laws made up by the men of different nations? The third error those who embrace the opinion of juridical positivism deny the existence of any natural law, whether between private individuals or between nations. For them, all laws are merely the result of civil authority. Such was the opinion of Hobbes and Bentham and others. Jean-Jacques Rousseau held that these laws were the result of, uh, from the result of some explicit or tacit pact among the people. Fourth error, those who belong to the historical school, founded, uh, uh, let's say, uh, in the early 1800s, founded in the 1800s. Right? They teach that there are indeed a certain general ideal norms by which nations should be governed in their relations towards each other. There are certain norms, right? but these norms are not true laws or duties. And therefore, they cannot be strictly imposed unless, there be some unless uh, they be recognized by custom or by some positive law. By the way, the historical school teaches that every law proceeds from the twofold historical source, namely civil law and custom. So that's the source of, of all laws, civil law and custom. Although these are the sources of all laws, not, the, natu not the, the natural order as such. Although they say that custom takes priority. And then the fifth error is the error of atheists and all those who embrace the materialistic philosophy of law. They hold the same opinion as those of the historical school. Right? All laws are only from, are created by men right? for the common good that they, de that they determine. Even though many of these authors use the term natural law or other terms which are similar to it, nevertheless they logically deny the existence of any true law since they deny any true obligation in conscience with regard to laws. It's only the external compliance. right? In particular, these people, these atheists and so on, they deny any natural, uh, any natural international law in the relations between different nations just as in the merely physical order, they only admit of the law of the one who is stronger. We've heard that, right? Might makes right. Thus, everything is ruled by coldness and egotism, and this twisted principle naturally, naturally leads to war between everyone. Thanks to our atheists, right? Because during the course of history, nations fall and other nations become more powerful. So they, in turn, they take revenge upon what happened to them some decades ago as war after war after war. 
What's the church doctrine? The main church doctrine, doctrine is this. There does exist a natural international law, both private and public, basically. There does exist an international law, both in the private domain and in the public domain. So I'll give you some definitions. Uh, perhaps we can copy these for those who want, because uh, time is running out. I have time. I'll have to continue tomorrow if I don't finish today. What is the international juridical order? What is this, the international juridical order? There's a definition, and it is the following. The international juridical order is that order which comprises all those laws and duties ordering the relations between diverse civil societies. Simple. It's the complexest of all these laws and duties. Thus, everything does not depend simply on certain positive agreements or pacts between nations and men. But before any positive convention or agreement may, made between men, nature itself imposes determined obligations and concedes determined moral faculties to the civil society. So nature itself is conceding rights and their uh, um, uh, consequent duties, obviously. However, it would be incorrect to say that all relations between nations are regulated only by natural duties and natural laws and natural rights. For besides these, there are also positive laws, both public and private, which are necessary to complement and to give pre precision to the natural law. Clear. We've seen that, I think, in, in the study of law. Otherwise, everybody can interpret the natural law, law the way they want. That's your definition. Now, a division, the kinds of international law, first of all. I think what uh, is marked here, the international juridical order. I'll try not to drop this. Juridical order and make it clear. One of the natural international. In other words, proceeds from nature, by the natural order, according to the, the social nature of man. So, so the division, first of all, is divided into the natural and the, posi the, natural and the positive order. The natural order, this concerns only those rights and duties between diverse nations which flow from the natural law. And the positive juridical order, this concerns those rights and laws which arise either from custom or from some agreement or treaty between nations. And they can be either universal or particular. The universal positive law, international law, is that which is in effect among almost all nations. And the particular positive international law refers to those laws which only exist among certain nations. So that's the first distinction, the natural and the positive international juridical order. And the second is the public and private. And you'll see why these are important. The public and private international juridical order. First of all, the public international order, which is international law, 
strictly speaking, in the public order of nations, obviously, right? refers to those laws and duties arising either from the natural law or from agreements between nations which govern the relations between the societies or the countries as such. So this governs the relation between the countries as countries. The subject, therefore, of this law are the countries, the nations as such. The juridical action, however, is exercised by the government officials who represent each nation. Now, the private international juridical order refers to that which governs the relations of the citizens of diverse societies among themselves in view of their private good. As I mentioned, when you go over to France, how do you want to be treated right, by the French government, by the French people? Right? There's a certain uh, natural right that you have to be treated with the, with the, the normal uh, human, the dignity you have as, as a, the person. Well, sure. And that comes from nature itself. Now, a note I made here. Besides these strict juridical rights and duties, there are also corresponding diverse moral, moral virtues, such as charity, obedience, legal justice, which apply. And these duties also exist between nations according to the natural law. So not only in the civil order, but even in the, the moral order, there are natural laws existing between nations and between the citizens of each nation in their relations. Okay, now the church doctrine. Okay, there does exist a natural international juridical order, both in the private order and the public order. First of all, in the private order, the private uh, sector, there is a private international law. There exists a private international juridical order for whatever belongs essentially to someone, that is by nature, is not law simply because he forms a civil society. But there are many rights and duties which belong to men by their very nature, such as the right to life, the right to a good name, the right to private property. Therefore, there does exist a natural law and duty ordering, um, duty ordering among themselves the relations of the members of the different nations, independent of the positive law. And therefore, the private international juridical law does exist. Imagine if you fly into, um, into uh, well, let's say, um, um, Hungary, arriving there, and you get off the plane, and, the, and the, they say, well, now that you're in our country, you, you, can't own, you can't take any of your possessions with you in our country. They belong to the state while you're in our country. You say, no, these belong to me. They're, they're my, my property. Nope, not here. <laughs> you can't do that, because you have a natural right, you see. As, a, as a, even a private individual, you have a natural right to that private property, even in someone else's country. So when they stop, you can say, this is my machine gun. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't be bringing your machine guns over there. <laughs> no. You know what I mean. The, the things which are legitimate to have, of course. I mean, it's true, uh, countries can make certain positive laws for the common good. You know. Sir, I'm sorry you can't bring it on the plane, but it's my, it's my horse. <laughs> Some things you can't bring, obviously. You know. So certain laws can be made. Now concerning the, the public international law. <clears throat> now, the natural precepts the natural laws, such as everyone, such as everyone must be given what belongs to him, what is his own, right? And the contracts must be observed. These, these precepts, everyone must be given what belongs to him. And contracts must be observed. 
right? These, right? These oblige not only private individuals, but also independent societies as such. So even moral persons, societies, whether imperfect societies or associations, as well as states and nations, well, sure. But such societies, independent of the positive law, they do have many things which they can call their own. So if they have things that belong to them as their own possession, right, and other nations have to recognize that right and, and, and their possession. For example, they have their national territories. They have their own form of government. They have their own magistrates and their public buildings and so on. And besides this, individual nations, right, they have a right. They, they may also enter into pacts or agreements or treaties with each other. And therefore, nature itself requires the existence of the public international juridical law between the nations. Additionally, it must be pointed out that the natural international law is the very foundation of the positive international law. For the positive law is based on the natural law. If you have no natural law, then the positive law is simply arbitrary, according to the power of the rulers. You see? Therefore, if there, does, if there exists a positive international law among nations, which there does, then by that very fact, there must exist the natural international juridical order because it's based upon it. Now, the next point concerns the equality of the natural rights and duties of nations. Well, only those nations which have a certain number of people have these certain rights. <laughs> well, let's see. What's the principle here? The thesis of the, of the Church's doctrine is this. All civil societies or nations have equal rights and duties according to nature itself. All societies, all nations have equal rights according to the natural law. Just because one nation is smaller or not as advanced doesn't mean they don't have the rights. Okay. So the main error right, is all those who concede to small nations either no rights or at least a lesser degree of rights than great nations. Well, the proof of the Church of Doctrine is clear. Right. The natural rights and duties in all civil societies will be equal if they all have the same end, the same power, and the same nature. But these, in fact, are the same for every civil society. Therefore, every civil society does have equal natural rights and duties. Same thing with the individual person. You have uh, natural rights that God has given to us. And, of course, those are to, so that we can fulfill our duties towards him, of course, and towards our fellow man. We have to have the right to do that. If the father has an obligation, a duty to, to provide for the temporal welfare of his children, then he has, not, then he has a, if he has a duty, then he has a right to private property. He has a right to make money if he works. He has a right to buy food. He has a right to own land. Okay? So these rights are, have corresponding duties, of course. The modern civilization wants to have all these rights without any corresponding duties. Or at least they don't, they don't enforce enough the idea that rights are based upon duties. And first of all, our duty uh, to God. Of course, how can they do that if they deny God? If, if, our, if our, the states, uh, their governments, the governments of the states are atheistic or agnostic. Well, how can any laws have any true meaning if they are based upon the law of God, the natural law which God has given to, to us? So that's pretty clear. The, um, all civil societies or nations have equal rights by nature no matter how big or small they might be. 
Now, the next main point is the nature of the natural rights and the duties of the nations. Let's explain these natural rights and duties. Okay, and the first point concerns the non-juridical duties. The non-juridical duties. Like moral virtues, for example. Okay? And the, the, the main doctrine here is all civil societies are obliged by the natural precept of charity unto mutual love and support. By natural love, all societies are required to, to follow this precept. Uh, right? Now, a few notes here. First of all, the notion of love means to will the good of another. And this, of course, refers to what is the true good of another. Right? Not to take advantage of his need, and so on. Not to give him something which he might want, but which would be bad for him morally or spiritually, for example. Second point, this precept of love is both negative and positive. It is negative insofar as it forbids those actions contrary to charity. Right? And thus is expressed in the following uh, axiom that we have. Do not do unto others what you would not want them to do unto you. So this excludes actions which are unjust or injurious to others, such as contempt, hatred, a bad opinion of others, for example, with regard to their family background and so on. Now this precept is positive or affirmative insofar as it commands positive goodwill, or beneficence, we say, or assistance according to the norms of true charity. And this is summed up in this axiom, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In the modern world, dog eat dog, it's been changed, unfortunately, by so many people. It's do unto others before they do unto you, unfortunately. Of course, this positive law of charity refers to the good works of charity and friendship towards one another, even by the natural law. So the principles of the love of neighbor, therefore, apply similarly with regard to the different nations, because nations are moral persons. Therefore, just as the individual persons have an obligation to practice by nature charity toward their neighbor, and so neighboring nations have an obligation by the natural law to practice uh, an, an, even natural charity and goodness and assistance with regard to uh, difficulties or suffering. Now, however, this mutual love does not mean that the subjects of one nation are obliged to love the subjects of another nation as fellow citizens, not in the same way, right? For it is certainly permitted for every citizen to have a special love for his own, um, for his own country and his fellow citizens. So surely, uh, if you're with a group of uh, uh, friends from your city going over to visit a different country, you show love to all the people you come in contact with, you show charity, but you may have a special kind of friendship towards your fellow uh, Americans. Oh, sure. That's all right. As long as it does not uh, interfere with the, the normal obligation of charity you have towards other people. To insult them, for example, because they aren't of the same country. That would be wrong. Additionally, in the practice of charity among nations, each nation must seek its own common good first before seeking to sacrifice itself uh, for other nations. Remember, charity starts at home. 
Thus, for example, even though it may be permitted for a private person to give all his goods to the poor, give all your goods to the poor and practice poverty, it will not be permitted for a nation to act similarly. For then it would impoverish its own citizens, thus acting contrary to its obligation to secure the common good in its own country. So, now, what's the main error here? The main error. The error is of those who in our times defend an exaggerated... Oh, did I skip a page? No, I didn't. Those in our time who defend an exaggerated nationalism and national egoism. These people everywhere encourage hatred. Where did I? Let's see here. I must have been the right. Yes, right. 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 Those who in our times defend an exaggerated nationalism and a national egotism. These people everywhere encourage hatred against other nations and neglect any positive assistance towards other nations who are in great misery or have great need. And the main proof is the following. According to the natural order, men are obliged to love their neighbors because all have the same human nature, the same personal dignity, and they are of the same origin, and they have the same natural and temporal end. And seeing that these things apply also to civil societies as moral persons, it follows that all civil societies are indeed obliged by the natural law to show mutual love and assistance. And now we will see next time, we'll continue tomorrow, I think, uh, so I don't, I'm mostly done, uh, concerning the, the, nation, the obligations of, na of the nations in the civil order, and then the unity of nations in a, a international society, to see what the rules, the uh, doctrine of the church is with regard, to the principles of the church with regard to an international society. We will see that tomorrow.